Hey everybody, thanks again for joining us for Church Online. My name is Danny, I'm the senior pastor of the church here. And as we dive into this new series, I wanna give a special shout out and thanks to everyone who took part in our amazing last series known by. From Buzz and Lindsay and our programming team who put the whole thing together and envisioned it, uh, to the teaching team for that series, Buzz and Lisa and Randy and Butch. It was an unbelievable series. If you missed any of it, you should jump back online and listen to the Known By series as we wrestled with the claim of Jesus that by this will all people know we are his disciples by our love for one another. As we step into this new series today called One Kingdom and talk about what the church is supposed to be like, I couldn't help thinking about all the content of the last series and the fact that the church is supposed to be known by our love. So the big question I want to ask as we step into this series today in, in relationship to being known by the love of Jesus Christ is, are we? Right? Do you think that we're known as a church by our love? If you were to ask some people in your family or in your community or in your workplace, hey, what are Christians known by? How many words do you think they'd have to rattle off before the word love entered into the conversation? You know, I jumped on Twitter earlier this week, which is always a scary thing to do regardless. But even especially in this context, I jumped on a Twitter, I went to the search bar, I typed Christianity or Christian, and I got a lot of people named Christian. But beyond all the names of Christ, named Christian, I started to see what people are using, what terms people are using when they're describing the church of Jesus Christ. And I got to tell you, the word love was nowhere to be found. Now, I saw a lot of the words that we hear all the time to describe Christians. I heard the word hypocrite. I, I saw the word bigot. I saw the word narrow-minded. I saw new words like science denier or conspiracy theorist or re reminders of the State of the Union in terms of where we're at with political opinions or race relation opinions. All of these different terms were used to describe Christians as a whole, as a group, as a community, as a subset of our nation or our international community. But the word love... It didn't make the cut. And when Jesus talks about the church, he says it's supposed to be a beautiful community known by its love, a community that lives within the kingdom of this world, where we have a different set of beautiful, humble ethics, where we have a different type of relationship with the world outside of our doors, and we submit to our governing authorities, and we're driven by a beautiful, beautiful picture of the future where the world will live in harmony with our God. We are supposed to be this beautiful community that is known as loving and beautiful and life-giving to the outside world. But the truth is, we're not. We're not. The church is full of strife, of anger, of drama, of division. And we divide over theological lines. We divide over denominational lines. We divide over political lines. We have been dividing a lot recently over racial lines. And we've divided over economic lines. We've divided over so many things that the division of the church of Jesus oftentimes is more famous in the world than the unity of the church of Jesus. And if you've been a Christian for a long time, this is the water we swim in. We know this. You've been in churches where there's been disunity, division. You've been in communities where there's strife and anger. You've been in beautiful, amazing communities and lamented at the fact that the reputation of the church does not match up with the experiences that you've had. But the truth and the fact remains that when we talk to the people in the outside world about what they think about the church, we're not 
known for our love. We're, we're known for so many other things that we don't want to be known for. You know, if we're tempted to say, well, who cares? Who cares what people think? I want to go back to that, that verse, that phrase that defined our last series about how the world will know we are Christ's disciples by our love for one another. And just remind all of us as we step into this series that, that if Jesus is right, and he is. If the love and the unity of the church is the greatest proof that our God is real, then the division and disunity that we experience in our church and that is in our reputation will be the biggest reason that people disbelieve our message and don't want to step into a life of faith with Jesus Christ. And several months ago, I, I met up with a group of pastors here in the Bay Area, and we started talking a little bit about uh, what it might look like for us to unite together as a Bay Area church community to start talking about the unity that needs to exist in the body of Christ. Now, this was before COVID-19 and the disunity that came there. This was before the race relationship conversation of the summer and all the disunity that happened there. That's before like a really polit or really uh, divisive political season, talking about lockdowns and government control and all these things that have plagued the church. Since that was before all of that, we sat down and said, you know what? As we're watching the State of the Union in the church, in the Bay and in the nation, we are seeing an increasing divide between people in the church church, specifically along lines of politics and worldview and things like that. And we said, this being an election year, we're scared that a lot of our people who call themselves Christians are going to find themselves more defined by their political party or more defined by their economic worldview or more defined by their racial worldview than they're defined as citizens of the kingdom of God. And so we said, what we should do is join forces and get together and spend some time equipping our churches on what it means that we are part of one kingdom. Right? You, if you're a Christian, you're part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Right? If you're part of this church, you're part of a church that is part of the kingdom of God. What does that mean for your life and the things that you believe and think about? If you are a Christian, you're part of the universal church, the global church, the Bay Area church, Three Crosses church. You are part of a kingdom within the kingdoms of this world. And so in this series, we're going to talk a little bit about what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven and how that permeates into every aspect of our existence. But I felt compelled as we were diving into this series today to say, hey, before we start talking into how to solve this issue, I think we got to talk a little bit more about this problem that plagues us, the, the division, the disunity, the strife, the sin, the lamentable dynamic that exists within the church of Jesus. And so today we're going to look at the first chapters of the scriptures to talk about God's vision for the church and how we can be a people that lives in unity as we pursue the vision he has for us as a people. So if you have Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start there and dive in with God's vision for the world. So this is Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 28. You know, if you're new to the Bible, maybe you've never read Genesis. Genesis is the, the book that describes how everything came into being. And in the first chapter of the scriptures, we see that God gives us this beautiful picture of the vision that he has for a global community. 
A group, a, a man and a woman created in the Garden of Eden who would fill the earth with human beings who would be worshipers of God, who would be serving him and ruling over the earth under the submission to their king, uh, who is God in heaven. And, and he says to them in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, it says, God blessed them. This is the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, we know them as. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and an increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sky and the birds in or the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And what we would imagine is over the next several chapters, the next several books, we would see this vision come to reality. We would hope that what we would see is a whole world filled with people worshiping Jesus together, linking arms in harmony, ruling as God would rule on this earth. But that is not what we see. If you've read the Bible, you know that this beautiful harmony lasts like five minutes. And by the time we get just a few chapters later in Genesis chapter 6, now this is what God is saying about the world. This is, this is actually Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. It says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and then with them the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. You know, in five chapters, we go from God saying, I'm going to create this man and the woman who are going to rule and reign over all the children and grandchildren and animals and birds and fish. And five chapters later, God is erasing everyone out of that sentence and saying, I'm so sad I made this place. It's time for it to be destroyed. And the flood in the story of Noah happens right after this. What happened in the four chapters between Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and Genesis chapter 5 and 6? What was it that destroyed the vision that God had for the world? If you've gone to church for a while, you know the Sunday school answer, right? The answer is sin. Sin steps into the world and starts destroying things. But, but uh, that is the right answer, right? The Sunday school answer is always the right answer. Jesus is always the right answer. But a lot of times the Sunday school answer isn't the most helpful answer to really drill down. Right? For example, uh, if you go to the doctor because you're sick, right? And, and you're having a hard time, you're coughing and you have a fever, and you go to the doctor and he takes your temperature, she takes your blood or whatever, and you go through all these tests and you get a call and the doctor says, I want to talk to you about what's going on. I think I figured out what's going on in your case. You say, okay, tell me, give me the bad news. And the doctor says, okay, I got to tell you, you're sick. You're like, okay, okay, I can take it. Like, no, that's it. You're sick, right? You are sick. That's true. That's the right answer. But there's a more specific answer. And as we look at what happened between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 6, yes, sin ruined everything. But the question I want to dive in today is how? How did sin ruin everything? Because the same thing that we see in this kind of entropy or decomposition of humanity in five chapters is the same thing we see all the time in the world, right? You start a community and five weeks later, the community is everybody's fighting, right? You jump into a family. Five years later, everybody's fighting. You have a friend. Five minutes later, you're in an argument, right? It seems like a lot of times we get into relationships and there's this decomposition that somehow sin steps into the community and starts destroying it. And a lot of times we look back and say, how did that happen? So if we're going to look at the state of the union of the church and figure out how to get out of some of these problems that plague us, I think we have to look at the scriptures and say, how did we get 
into the problems that tend to plague the community and faith of faith over and over and over again. And so I want to chart just real quick how sin stepped into the community of God's people and destroyed it in a very short period of time in the history of the world. We know that sin enters into the world in, in Genesis chapter 3. Right? At that point, uh, the man and the woman are in the garden. They are naked and unashamed. We see this picture that there is no sin inside of them. They're naive people. God has told them, do whatever you want in this garden. you got to trust me, though. Stay away from that tree. If you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll die. Right? And so... Adam and Eve walking around totally naive, no sin in them, but sin existed outside of them. There was an embodiment of sin, uh, a being we know as Satan who stepped into the garden and started trying to mess with the human race. So Satan goes to the man and, and starts to try to decompose and deconstruct what God has taught him. He says, you really think you're going to die if you eat from that tree? And Adam says, yeah, yeah, God says, stay away from that tree. And the, the serpent says, no, 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 God is not telling the truth. Right? You're not going to die if you eat that. In fact, if you eat that fruit, you will become like God. And somehow Satan's words to the man tapped into something inside of him where he was tempted to want to become like God. And so he stepped into disobedience, took that forbidden fruit, put it into his mouth. And in a symbolic way and in a real way, as he disobeyed God, the sin went from outside and entered into the human race. We see by the time we, we get to Adam and Eve's offspring, Cain and Abel, we see that sin is, is deeply embedded inside of them. Cain has an experience where in the midst of a worship setting, he feels like he's not getting the response from God that he desires. And we see that inside Cain, this sin starts boiling up. There's this anger, this rage inside of him, which is new to the human race. This virus almost adamantly inhaled it and it started to eke through his whole system. And now Cain has caught it and he's got this anger, this vitriol inside of him. And God comes to Cain and says, Cain, you need to trust me. Be very careful. The thing inside of you wants to destroy you. This sin is crouching at your door. You have to rule over it. This disease wants to take you over. But Cain did not trust and submit to the rule of God. He listened to the sin that was now inside of him and he let his rage take over. And he premeditatedly murdered his brother soon thereafter. But the next and, and only other person that we get a glimpse of before God destroys the human race in Genesis 6 in the line of Adam and Cain is a man named Lamech, where if Adam was the naive person with sin on the outside of him and, and Cain was the conflicted person with sin on the inside of him, Lamech is an example of a descendant of Cain that now sin has completely taken over his life and hardened him. We, we don't see a conversation between God and Lamech. We don't see any conflict in Lamech. We see zero naivety in, in Lamech. What we see is a man who remembers what happened to his ancestor Cain, and he murders someone too. And he says, you know what? I'm going to take down whoever I want to take down, and God's going to have my back because I do what I want. And we see a man who is full of pride and hardened and who is now using God to do his own bidding. And now Lamech has stepped into the seat of God. Right, in three glimpses of humans, we see sin going from outside of mankind to inside of mankind, to permeating mankind, to hardening mankind, and then like virally going throughout the entire human race and getting to a point that sin has completely destroyed everything that God has tried to create. 
When we think about the State of the Union in the world today and the State of the Union in the church today, we see that same thing happening, don't we? I was talking to somebody just this week who has a background in addiction and, and then luckily or by God's grace, recovery. And he was describing just the cycle of addiction. And it was just a reminder of kind of how sin works, that there was this substance that used to only exist on the outside of him. And then the substance comes into him and then something in him starts desiring more of it. And before he knows it, now he's controlled by his own desires for a substance that is destroying him. And it wasn't until God rescued him and renewed his desires that he was released from the bondage that sin had creeped into his life and destroyed. Or you might be sitting out there today watching this and you are still in bondage to sin. Now maybe you've never stepped into faith with Jesus and at a personal, individual level, sin is controlling you. There are things that, that you keep doing that you want to stop and you can't. There are things that you want to love and you can't love them. There are things you want to stop loving. You can't stop loving them. And you are completely controlled by this cycle that somehow entered you and is destroying you from the inside out. And some of us are in families like this. Some of us are in communities like this. And unfortunately, the church of Jesus is not immune to the effects of sin. Now, we've all seen church communities that sin has started on the outside, stepped into the inside, and destroyed from the inside out. Some of us have gone through seasons in life that sin has, as Christians, stepped into our lives and destroyed us from the inside out. Now, when we talk about what sin does, we want to not end there, obviously. We want to talk about what's, what's the answer. And if we're talking about Sunday school answers, you know the answer is Jesus. As we read through the scriptures, we see that nothing can solve the detrimental effects, the hardening effects, the killing effects of sin, except for Jesus himself. Jesus, who is God himself, steps onto, onto the human, or God's created earth with the humans. He dies for sin. He takes sin away. He renews our hearts. He softens us. He renews our desires. He starts making us more into his image. Through a relationship with Jesus, we can be transformed. If you are not a believer in Jesus, you need, the only thing you need to know today is if you step into faith with Jesus, he can take your sin away. He can replace your hardened heart with a heart of flesh. He can bring you life and vitality. He can soften the effects of sin and soften your heart and change your eternity. Jesus, and only Jesus can do that. Now the question that comes up when it comes to the state of the union with the church is how do we get Jesus to do that with the church? What does it mean that even as a faith community, the hardening effects of sin are stepping into our our lives and destroying us. What does it mean as Christian individuals? Some of us are going through this COVID-19 season and we feel like we're being hardened, like sin is destroying us. Something from the outside of us, some article on the internet or some data that we're watching from the CDC or some kind of conspiracy theory we read about or our own isolation or loneliness or lack of community. Something started permeating into our lives and we feel like we're becoming shells of ourselves and we're Christians, but we feel like we need Jesus. Right as the state of the union of the church in the world today, we see the division, we see the strife, we see the anger, we see the denominationalism and all the detrimental effects of dividing, dividing, dividing. We see the politicking and worldviews. We see all of it. And we know that Jesus is the answer. But how do we apply the answer of Jesus to the disease of sin and division within the church? Or to ask it the other way, what, what hope is there for the world 
if the church of Jesus Christ does not reflect the love of Jesus. Now, as I scour through Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 for, for answers to that question, it's not a very hopeful set of chapters. It's a chapter that shows the decline of the church. And at the same time, I was reading in Genesis chapter 3, uh, right when God gives a curse to mankind this week, that I saw something that I'd never really seen before in the biblical text. You know, a lot of times we see that the man and the woman, they eat of this fruit, sin enters the world, God finds out, he brings this curse, and he tells them, everything that you do is going to war against you. As you try to live out this vision for the kingdom in the world, it's going to war against you. As you try to raise children, they're going to war against you. As you try to plow the ground. It's going to war against you. That's the curse of mankind. A lot of times we read the curse of mankind merely as the punishment for the sin. And yet at the same time, as we look at the very end of the curse that God gives, we see that there's a glimpse of the why behind the curse. You know, I see in this text, this is Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, that within the symptoms of the disease of sin, God has actually woven in the first step towards recovery. And it's here in in verse 19 of chapter 3 of Genesis, God says, By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground. Sins. Now listen to this. From the ground, from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. I started asking myself this week, why did God include that sentence in the curse of mankind? Why did God see fit to remind the human beings when they're about to step into a sin-soaked world and about to enter into this moral decline and about to enter this place where morality is falling apart, society is falling apart? Why did God say, hey, just so you know, the reason I'm allowing some of this curse to step onto you is so that you remember that you are nothing more than dust? And I think what God is trying to get man and woman to see in this case, and what God is trying to get us to see about this as we look at this text, is that if we really want to start stepping out of the symptoms and the reality of sin, the first thing that we need to recover is a posture of humility. I think one of the things that I notice as I watch the fall of mankind through these chapters in Genesis is that humility starts disappearing. Right? We have a naive Adam who just trusts and loves God. And by the end, we have this Lamech, Lamech who's forgotten about God and he's full of pride. And God is saying, I'm trying to keep you very grounded because in a lot of ways, Jesus will save you. But the only way that Jesus is going to save you is if you can humble yourselves and realize that I am God, you are human, and you need to trust me. Right? It's the same message he gave Adam. Trust me, don't eat from that tree. It's the same message he gave to Cain. Trust me, this the sin in you is going to destroy you. It's that message that he never got to give Lamech. Trust me, follow me, stop living in your own pride. Adopt a posture of humility and you can start to make progress towards my vision for your lives. Now, the truth is that we will only make progress towards the vision that God has given us for his future if we step into the conversation with that posture of humility. 
you know, I had an opportunity these last couple of weeks to, to spend some time with, with amazing people in our church, uh, to have a conversation that is potentially kind of hostile. I, I, I brought these folks into my backyard for the last couple of weeks and said, hey, I want to talk about where are places that our church does not do a good job of loving people? Where are there people in our community outside the church or our community inside the church where people are being overlooked? And, and that was a conversation that I was a little bit scared to have. Right, because people can come into my yard and say, all right, I'm gonna tell you 500 things that your church stinks at, right? I wanna tell you why our church is terrible. I wanna tell you all these things that I see that need to change immediately. And it could have came into this huge argument, but you know what I saw? A bunch of people stepped into the context of that conversation with a godly, Christ-centered, humble posture. And they said, you know what? I would love to talk about some places where our church can do better at loving folks. And they started bringing stuff out. They said, hey, I think sometimes our church overlooks folks who have special needs. I think sometimes our church overlooks folks who are living below the poverty line. I, I think sometimes our church is very accidentally overlooking folks that, that don't look like other folks. I think sometimes our, our church overlooks the homeless community. I think sometimes our church overlooks folks who are single in their 40s and 50s, and I don't think the church is doing it on purpose, but humbly, Danny, I want to tell you that sometimes I feel like there are people who are overlooked in our church, and I got to tell you, the posture of humility that people brought into that conversation allowed it to be a conversation that can help our church become a more beautiful, equitable, Christ-centered representation of what the kingdom of Jesus Christ is supposed to look like. Now, the truth is that, that if we can humble ourselves and live as God has called us to live, the world will begin to know us by the love that God says they will know us by. You know, this is a series that we're about to step into where we're going to talk a lot about God's vision for the church. You know, next week we're going to talk about what kind of community God has made us into. We're going to talk into what, what is marking us as a people. What's the ethic of this community? We're going to talk about uh, the relationship that our church community has with the political relationships in this world. And I want to tell you right now, there is going to be zero topics in this series that are, that are biblically controversial at any level. We're talking about boilerplate Bible stuff. What does Romans 13 say about the church's relationship with governing authorities? What does the Bible say about the ethic of the people of God? Very vanilla, non-controversial topics. And that I'm going to tell you right now, there's going to be some things we talk about that's going to make you really uncomfortable. You're going to feel like, well, I don't know if I agree with that. I don't know if I want to submit to that. I don't know if we should do talking about this at church. And I got to tell you that the reason that you're going to feel uncomfortable is not because we're stepping into any controversial biblical grounds, but because there are things in all of us where the worldview that we have does not match up with what God tells us is true from the scriptures about what the church is supposed to be about. And so my challenge for you as we step into this series is to step into this series with a posture of humility. And if you go into next week and you have listening, humble ears for what the church is supposed to look like, you're going to come out of that conversation way differently than you come in, if you come in wanting to defend what you believe or what you think or wondering what the agenda is. I'm telling you right now, there is no agenda for this series beyond this. 
We want to learn what God says about being his people in a society that does not reflect the kingdom of God in a lot of ways. And as we walk through all the things that divide us from politics to race to ethics to worldview to even our very relationship with the outside world, the Bible has some very simple, life-giving, beautiful principles that if we apply to our lives with humility— the world will begin to see the beautiful love that exists between us because that will be the thing that defines us. And so as we close our time today, let me give you a, a verse from 1 Peter that will encapsulate the attitude I hope all of us can adopt as we step into this beautiful series called One Kingdom. It's 1 Peter 5, verses 5 and 6. Peter, Peter quotes uh, another author and says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Let me pray for us as we move into our service. Lord, we thank you for just a reminder that Jesus is the solution and to the sin that plagues every aspect of the world and the church today. We admit that so often we are disheartened as we look at the state of the union within the world and even the state of the union within the Christian church as we see strife and anxiety and backbiting and anger and vitriol and politics just raging like a fire all over the place. And we pray that you would give us the grace as members of this faith community and members of churches around the Bay who are going through this series, that you would give us your grace to humble ourselves and walk into a conversation where we might be equipped to live as the people you have designed us to be. Let us trust that if we humble ourselves and trust you with all things, that you will equip us to be your people. And we pray that from that posture of humility, that we'd be able to let your love flow through us and that that love would mark us, and that the world outside would see the remarkable love that exists within the church, and they'd be transformed and drawn to you as a result. And I pray for anyone today who's outside of a relationship with you, whose sin is hardening and ravishing their, ravaging their own lives, that they would humble themselves and turn to you even in this moment, and they would start a humble walk with Jesus that starts to reverse the effects of sin in their lives, cancels the penalty of sin for all time, and brings them into a beautiful, life-giving, eternal relationship with our amazing triune God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey everybody, thanks so much for watching. Hopefully you were encouraged by what you saw today. My name is Danny, I'm the pastor at Three Crosses and just wanna encourage you, if you're looking to connect more, you can check out our website, threecrosses.org. Uh, we stream our services every Sunday. You can jump in on that. Or if you live in the San Francisco Bay Area, come and find us, we'd love to connect with you. Before you go today, hit the subscribe button, keep up to date with what's going on week after week. We'd love to stay connected. Have a great one.